Hey everyone, um, this episode is going to be a bit of a serious one. We recorded it back in March, in the middle, middle of March, a few days after the Atlanta shooting that happened in the United States. And it was also during the wake um, of discussions surrounding anti-Asian discrimination. Though of course, these experiences have been a reality for many people for a long time. Anyway, um, we were joined by Marg and Alquin from Anakbayan Toronto to help us process everything that was going on during that time. Um, we hope you learn a lot from this conversation. Um, we definitely did. So here we go. One, two, three. Okay, I'm ready. Cool. Um, what our lives are like and who we are. Ho-ho, an FSAP podcast. You guys ready? Yeah. Okay. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Hall and FSAT Podcast. Today, you're joined with your three hosts, Ian, Sophia, and Marie. And we are also joined by two guests from an organization called Anak Bayan. Would you two like to introduce yourselves? Hey, everyone. I'm Marg, and I'm the Secretary General of Anak Bayan. Hi, I'm Alquin. I go by he, him. I am the solidarity officer of Anakbayan Toronto. So Anakbayan is one of many global chapters situated in Toronto that advocates for national democracy and genuine freedom of the people in the Philippines. Um, Marie and Al, do you want to tell us a little bit about any projects that Anakbayan is currently doing or has done in the past? Yeah, Al, do you want to talk a little bit about the Youth Workers Campaign? So uh, one, the Youth Workers Campaign we're, we're focusing on right now is focusing on uh, youth workers that are um, working in the food uh, service industry, food, uh, this food, uh, the food industry in general, and specifically Filipino youth, what their experiences are. And uh, we talk about the issues that, um, that come up due to, to COVID, but also re- relating it back to how a current system in place uh, got the youth to, into, into where they're at right now. But not only are we, not only is the work like about informing it, it's actually about learning about the experiences of youth here in Canada, because youth here in Canada is different from the youth there in Philippines. But however, we can't help but tie in that it's still the Filipino experience at the end of the day. And it's like, this is, this is the diaspora experience, but you also have youth that also came from Philippines directly that had the, a very close tie in to, to, to the memory back home. So um, when you, so it's, it's a diverse, uh, it's a diverse experience and we're, we're trying to aim to, to um, amplify that. Yeah, and some of the other work we do is involved in advocating for Filipino youth here in the Philippines, mm-hmm. here in Canada, sorry, uh, mm-hmm. but also really fighting for national democracy in the Philippines. So. Um, even though the Philippines is a free nation um, on paper, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's completely free from foreign influence and specifically um, U.S. imperialism and control. And because of that, um, the governments that have come through in the Philippines don't actually have the people's interests at heart. Mm-hmm. And um, and so what we're fighting for is liberation of those people and liberation of those who are 
especially vulnerable and oppressed in the Philippines. And the other thing we also uh, do touch upon is that we have uh, certain lines of work. So one of the most important things actually is education, because it's like we uh, we welcome public education discussions because whenever it's easy to do an action, but action without education or 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 having the reasoning behind it just be, becomes less sustainable. So it's very uh, important for us um, not only to uh, uh, the public to learn about uh, political education, but also uh, we learn from the public themselves where they're at, what's their conditions, because it's like it's called like an educational discussion. It's not like a lecture style. It's like we discuss about certain things that you learn uh, taking away from it. And then you start to realize like, what are, what are certain actions we could take um, because of this? So everything is deliberate. And um, so it's like learning from where people are at on an educational level, but also teaching them uh, what we know. So that, that's, that's also another component. Uh, we aim to you know, form alliances with other orgs. So it's not just Filipino orgs that we work with. We also work with other orgs here. Uh, for example, uh, uh, not another Black Life in Toronto. We work with Palestinian Youth Movement. Um, other organizations that um, that build off that um, that front of anti-imperialism and and for the working class, really. Um, but we could explain more about that. It's um, those those are those are things that we 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 talk about. Yeah, and um, actually, we partnered with U of T's Sexual Health Education mm -hmm. Center. Uh, for Shaw for Sexual Health Awareness mm. Week, we hosted an event where mm. we did a movie screening of the documentary Call Her Ganda. Mm. Um, for those of you listening, Ganda means beautiful in Tagalog, uh, which is the story of Jennifer Laude, a trans Filipina woman who was murdered by a US Marine while he was stationed in the Philippines. And um, so we've, we've hosted that screening with U of T students and actually after it, not only did we host the screening, like Al said, we had an educational discussion afterwards. Mm -hmm. So we talked about what were the conditions in the Philippines that led to Jennifer's murder? What is um, the relationship between the U.S. Marines being situated in the Philippines? And mm -hmm. what is um, the political situation with uh, when it comes to punishment, crime and punishment, when it comes to visiting soldiers, what rights do they have? And mm. um, why are they, why are, why is the Philippine government so quick to protect those soldiers rather than their own people? And whenever we focus on issues, it's always on an intersectional kind of point of view, because it's like, you can't talk about, um, you can't talk specifically about uh, racism or or sexism without uh, relaying it back to colonialism or and then imperialism. It's like you, you have to talk about these topics or um, or even indigenous rights because it's like you can't talk about environment without talking about indigenous rights. It's kind of like it's it, they they intersect. So um, yeah, <laughs> there's like it's they 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 are more connected than people uh, than we all think. And um, I think it's really important for us collectively. Uh, not just ethnic biases, even even people listening, people, and you know, sometimes people who are not in the orgs might know that some things that we don't, and uh, and so it's important for us to discuss about these things um, that because they all connect uh, to one another. I think that's a good segue to introduce um, the topic that we wanted to discuss, and we wanted to invite you guys 
um, because of everything you just said, like the work that you've been doing um, all throughout this time, like we've been seeing it on social media and everything. And we, when we were, when we, you know, we talked about wanting to discuss this topic, we were like, okay, we should try to get Anak Bayan um, because um, we just felt like there's a lot we can learn from from you because um, of all the all the work that you've been doing. So, okay, Marie, you can introduce the topic and the disclaimer. So I guess to start, um, we will be talking about racism and racism as a topic is a very complex one because it's very multi-layered and it's experienced differently between different individuals. So what we will be saying in this conversation reflects our own personal understanding of the issue and that means that what we know is based off of our personal experiences. <clears throat> we hope that you as a listener are able to find something here that you can relate with. And although you might not agree with everything that is being said, we hope that there's still something you can take away and reflect on, or maybe talk to somebody else at the end of this conversation. Um, so to start, we're going to define what racism means and some vocabulary that surrounds this topic. And the standpoint we're taking this from is a bit of an academic one. Um, we're taking the definitions like quote as a quote from a paper written by Richardson and all and it's a paper called towards a Psych social psychology so toward a social psychology of race and race relations for the 21st century um, so they define race or I guess racial categories as something that is historically situated context specific and subject to process of both resistance and reproduction they also say, we don't racially categorize ourselves or others simply based on what we see. When cues regarding physiognomy shape racial categorization, they do so in concrete with social norms, conventions, and even law. So Alan, Marg, what do you think about this definition? Do you think there's anything you can add to it? Or how, is that how you understand race as well? Mm. Could you repeat that again? I, I just want to rewrite that down. Um, so they said, racial categories are historically situated, context-specific, and subject to processes of both resistance and reproduction. We don't racially categorize ourselves or others simply based on what we see. When cues regarding physiognomy shape racial categorization, they do so in concord with social norms, conventions, and even law. Um, Ian threw it in the chat. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> <laughs> When she read it to me also, I was like, well, we have to read that. Sorry. It's like, yeah, that's a very, very deep um, yeah. definition when we're talking so, about categories. Yeah. I really like, though, what it says in the definition, the importance of it's not just based on what we see, right? Mm. It's not just, um, we're not racially categorized just based on the way we look. And it goes a lot much, a lot deeper than that, uh, especially when we talk about the norms and conventions, like we're categorized by our behaviors as well and our affiliations. Yes, and um, and it it's they they do with social norms and conventions and law, and uh, this this goes to the topic of systemic racism because it's based on systems in place that create racism. <laughs> what do you call yeah. racism now? And especially when we look at countries like Canada and the US, race wasn't, um, it didn't just 
it's not coincidence how the racial divide came up, right? This is, it's an intentional centuries long way of dividing foreigners, so to speak, and minorities, um, because they know that if we were to band together, we might be stronger than the powers that may be. And part of um, racial categorization, even when we talk about today's topic, Asian discrimination, what does it even mean to be Asian? There are so many countries in Asia, mm. but yeah, you know, you, you come into North America and suddenly you get lumped into this, this identity of Oriental, Asian, this monolith of people when, you know, mm. that's not really an identity you probably had, especially coming from like the Philippines. Um, mm. You know, you're Filipina, you might be Ilocano, you might be Visaya, right? But then you come overseas, you, you migrate here and all of a sudden you're Asian. And like, what, what does that even mean? And this like idea that racial categories are socially constructed as this definition states is, is very clear in that sense, like in the way that Western worlds have wanted to divide us and categorize us into these large scale umbrellas that don't take into account the actual nuances of our identities. Um, I do have a question for all three of you, of you guys. Um, what do you, what, on your own personal defi- definition, what do you define racism to be? And it could be as, as, as simple to complex as you want it. So racism, not race, right? <laughs> Just, racism, yeah. Um, I think my d- definition will be a little unfair because we like prepared for this and because I've been talking about this topic in social psychology, like as a course. Mm. Um, but... I would say racism, like you both mentioned, it's systematic, but it can also be based on an individual level. Mm-hmm. Um, but it stems from prejudice against certain racial groups and just, and through those prejudice or those beliefs you have that are often unfounded, it will just lead to both unconscious and conscious discrimination against those racial groups. Correct. And um, yeah, how about you guys? I'm just like kind of curious because this is a discussion at the end of the day. (laughs) I think think Marie said it really well. Um, Okay, well, for me, because I grew up in the Philippines, I think this is like you guys touched on this earlier. And I like the concept or the idea of race and racism when you grow up in a very homogenous kind of society, it's not they're not concepts that are salient. They weren't salient to me growing up. And so it was really only when I moved to Canada that these things became things I had to think about. Um, And so like, I'm not able to articulate it in a way that's the same way as as Marie did because like, I'm still learning. And that's why, um, yeah, this this conversation is, is something that I really wanted to be a part of because um, like we said earlier, everyone experiences racism and, and just like race as a part of your self identification. Everyone has, everyone experiences that differently. And for me, I'm still kind of in the process of like seeing how that fits for myself. Um, mm. I, I only moved like for university. So like two years ago, I'm still kind of like, I didn't even realize that like, 
I was like, oh yeah, I'm I'm a minority. I didn't like that's not something that registered to me until like maybe a year in because I was like, it's just something that I didn't grow up with. Everyone around me was Filipino. Every so it wasn't yeah. It, so I'm still I'm still learning, and I don't want to like kind of butcher the 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 meaning. Um, and yeah, I, I'm just gonna learn from this conversation. I mean, everyone has like everyone could feel what uh could understand the feeling of it if that makes yeah. sense it's like the the but uh textbook wise you know it's hard to define um yeah but yeah but yeah we'll, we'll talk about this more uh, yeah ian what, what uh what's your take cool um so yeah i totally agree with what marie said but i want to emphasize two things from my personal definition of racism mm-hmm. one is that racism can take many forms it's not just institutionalized, nor is it just interspecific. But I believe that a lot of the things or a lot of the way that racism manifests are just different faces of institutionalized racism. So at, the, at its fundamental core, racism is institutionalized because I believe no one is inherently born racist, you know? Yeah. But at the same time, as much as racism is propagated by these institutions, I believe that racism in and of itself is an institution. Because if you look at how, how often these, for example, racist beliefs are structured, created, and propagated, they have these very, very set ways of reproduction, very set ways of procedure, very set ways of protocol. Mm-hmm. So it it's honestly can be very likened to a very stringent bureaucratic process. So for me, I think, Racism in and of itself is a social system and not just a product of the social system. Yeah, I completely agree with that, Ian. The idea that racism isn't just a product of us all living in a diverse world. Like it's not an inevitable thing that racism this deep and this institutionalized isn't just because we share a country or we share a a piece of land. Like it's not just because we all live here. It, it goes a lot deeper than that. And when we think about like the historical roots of racial divide, it's, it's intentional. Um, mm-hmm. It's been intentional by, and it's made intentional by these people who hold power, predominantly white people who hold the, the power and they want to continue to uphold these systems of racism and institutionalized racism because it, serves them at the end of the day. It serves them and it will continue to serve them so long as we don't dismantle it. Mm-hmm. And like as like Mark said, uh, racism dates back a lot more historically than uh, people imagine. For example, um, when it comes to like with black people, uh, America brought over slaves and these slaves are automatically in a lower class right away when they get to a new country. So uh, not only did the system bring them to a lower class, it taught the people living within it to think that they're they're in a lower class. So the thing is, it's like uh, racism is is like what Ian said. It's a diff, uh, different. It's different systems institutionalizing uh, racism, whether it be inner. Uh, like on an interpersonal level and and on an on an extroverted way where it applies to the external um, things that you see. For example, inner racism, like if we're gonna give it to Philippines, it's like 
why do we have white moon soaps? Uh, why do we aspire to be more white? But if you look back in, in uh, pre-colonial times, like when the US invaded us, it's like the, um, it became when the, the US like, had a lot of influences, uh, influence in the Philippines. And why do we aspire to be like Americans and not like our and not be proud of ourselves? So we have we it's it's little things like that that date back to um, aggressions from from an oppressor. We totally agree, and uh, we'd like to build on that point. But um, we'd like to ask you guys: Do you think there's a distinction between micro and macro level racism? They go hand in hand uh, because on a macro level, uh, you have institutions that that uh, institutions that have certain class of people and certain certain groups of people to fail. Uh, for, exa- for example, like over here in Canada, you have indigenous and, and blacks um, living in poor areas. And it's like, why is that? And, um, but in, in the Philippines, it's the, same, it's the same thing. If you're not, um, if you don't uphold a certain system, especially if you're an indigenous person in Philippines or if you are a farmer in Philippines, uh, you, you are almost like devalued, uh, and as a system and on a micro level, it's like, if you don't uphold those certain systems, you're lower than everybody in a way. I, just to put it in simpler terms, and I think Mark did explain. I think that, um, they're different in the sense of how it's experienced, right? When you, yeah. as a racialized person experience a microaggression, it's very different from like a systemic, um, macro racist institution that you know is against you versus you know someone saying like oh you're really dark <laughs> when you see them or like oh what are you mm-hmm. eating that smells weird like it it feels different when you experience it but at the end of the day they all uphold that same institutionalized that same institutionalized racism like where do those people get the idea even to tell you that you look weird or that you are different. Um, like, yeah, those things might be micro and you feel them on a different level, but like when you look at the bigger picture of racism and racial injustice, it all falls under that, back under that same umbrella of that macro level racism and that divide that has been intentionally created. And it also ties into like, uh, what is this idea of, of institutionalized racism? And ideas come from like, those, those systems being practiced all the time and then those ideas spread. So it's like people start to have those internal ideas, whether they, they mean to have it or not. And it usually just targets like poor people to be more racist toward each other. It's kind of like, it's kind of like a sad, sad thing. Yeah. Um, I guess um, we could like now narrow this, this conversation down to um, racism because we were talking about this um, before we met and we feel that racism occurs both towards the Asian community and within the Asian community. Um, And that's like a broad statement. So we kind of wanted to talk about um, racism towards the Asian community first. Um, Can you guys speak about like how Asian discrimination has become more prevalent in the light of COVID-19 and Sort of how you guys have been personally processing all the events that have been happening. Um, yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, I think while things have definitely, in, like racial discrimination against the Asian community has 
definitely increased over COVID-19. It's this really like vile rhetoric that is spread by the powers that may be and them, you know, the US president calling it the China flu or Kung flu, like referring to the, the virus itself as originating from China consistently. And this continuous anti-Asian rhetoric that's like, oh, because Asians eat weird stuff. It's because they, they're dirty. They don't, uh, they don't have sanitary market situations. That's why like, it's their fault that we have this virus. Um, but then look, the UK, a variant came from the UK. And if you look through the news, they very rarely refer to it as the UK variant anymore. It's now referred to as, I believe it's B117 strain. I could be totally wrong about that number, but it's something like that. <laughs> and and they're, not, they're not calling it the UK flu. They're not calling it the British, British West Nile or something, you know, like they're mm. not, there's, there's no rhetoric of that. There's, it's been intentional about it coming from this, from China essentially, and that the, the idea that it's it, it's a, it's their fault. It's their fault that coronavirus is happening. It's this, their fault that we're in this pandemic when, um, but even though that that has definitely increased and I think it's 100% perpetuated by politicians and people in power continuing this rhetoric. I mean, um, you've seen, I don't know if you've seen some of the, the merchandise that's been sold around Chinese people spreading this flu. Um, I think there was, it was like a spoof shirt of Corona the beer and instead of like made in Mexico, it says like made in China. Um, and, and these things are being sold, <laughs> like being sold, they're on the internet, people are buying them. Um, but this idea of racism against the Asian community isn't new. And it's, it's definitely become more prevalent. And I think people are seeing it more now. It's um, more out in the open, but it's, it's been here. Like we're, as an Asian community, we, we've seen it, we've lived it. But even deeper than that, like the anti-Asian violence is, is so hard. You can't really think about anti-Asian violence without considering all of the colonization that's happened in Asian countries. So Western, westernized white people, basically, this is what I'm trying to say, have come into Asian countries and tried to claim them as their own and enforce their own values on them. And if we're talking about the Philippines, they were colonized by Spain all those years ago. And although they became free from Spain, they became colonized by the US. And though, even though they're not technically a US colony anymore, the US, like Al was saying, those that influence, that US influence still lives and that through imperialism. And imperialism um, in a broader sense is the idea that like, for example, the US has wants control. They have, not only do they want control of other global areas, they also have control, they do, and they have influence and um, they, they essentially want to turn the world into a monopoly, a monopoly that is theirs. And, um, and the Philippines is, is not sparred from that and other Asian countries are not spared from that either. And that's, that's like the, the underpinnings of all of this discrimination, right? It's, it didn't just start because of coronavirus and, be, and yes, coronavirus has 100% amplified 
the discrimination that Asian communities are facing, but it's the idea didn't just come from this. It did like it, the idea didn't just fall from the sky that Asians are dirty or Asians are different and we should isolate them and um, we should spread hate towards them. That that's been around for a while, yeah, unfortunately. It, it's it's a buildup. Like um, it's kind of crazy because, like for example, mad cow disease came from Britain, but. The thing is that with 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 Western uh, Western food processing, like slaughterhouses are are dirty too. They're actually probably as bad as wet markets, but they don't talk about that. It's like you have all these hormonal injections, uh, like cattle's being close together. There's a lot of there could be a lot of viral infection there, and they never call it the British flu. They call it they call it mad cow disease, and it's like that's it's like um, but it's a buildup of of. A certain rhetoric that's been placed before so for um and for example like like mark said it's when we talk about imperialism it's like it talks about like um enforcing almost like your own uh, your own uh, ideals over over a certain group of people that don't necessarily follow it and it's like you force it that way and the way i compare it is the way it's like if you were to uh, go to walk to a random group of people and you try to make them your clone, but by force. <laughs> um, and it's like, follow me now. <laughs> or if you ever watch like Eminem videos where it's like the real Slim Shady and everyone's like, please stand up. And it's like, literally, that's what it kind of feels like. And um, it's such a broad term, but I, I, and I do want to like uh, ground it in, uh, that's an old people reference. <laughs> and um I want to. I do want to ground it in a more relatable level, but that's. But like, those effects are very day to day. When we, then you still have your your stereotypes because of Asian people because um, Western powers have depowered them for a long time. When right. when they invaded or or uh, colonized their own countries, mm -hmm. so it's like why, especially like when you when it comes to, like. Um, the identity of an Asian person itself. It's like, why is the, why is the Asian person's, uh, Asian people's like idea of masculinity diff like less than a Western? You know what I mean? It's kind of like you're, you're put it in a comparison. Mm -hmm. So we could, we could expand on that. <laughs> yeah. Um, one thing we really, kind of thinking about is how how does like Asians as a model minority how does that play into the different like the dynamics of, of this issue you know compared to other other kinds of discrimination because Asians are put in a place where like it's not that we can't succeed in the western world you know like it's it's not that like we're not we're not looked like we're looked at in a different light compared to let's say um like let's say compared to like the the black um community they the 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 sort of the stereotypes surrounding asians are different um i mean that's that's how i come to understand it. and we were talking about this before and we just wanted to know like how, how do you think that that plays a role into how this whole issue is, is kind of happening now. The model minority myth is in itself incredibly dangerous, right? It, it's this idea that the 
if you work hard, you can transcend above racism. If you, if you work, if you do follow all the rules that the, that the society enacts upon you, that you can be the white person, you can be successful. And there's this idea that Asians as a model minority have ach can achieve this. And the idea, um, but it's very dangerous because the, that's the idea that in order for us to succeed, we need to put ourselves in closer and closer proximity to whiteness. Rather than like when we're defining what is success as a model mind from the perspective of the model minority, it's essentially assimilating. It's assimilation, it's rising to power, rising, becoming the oppressor, essentially, like being a white person, specifically a white man. Um, but and like that's that's part of the model minority myth. And that's um, that's really dangerous. And uh, even when there was, you know, a lot of anti-Asian rhetoric back in the 30s and 40s when the U.S. and Canada imported uh, Asian workers to toil their land and to, in Canada, build the Trans-Canada Railroad, um, there was still a lot of racial discrimination. And um, part of that was that idea that, you know, because unless you assimilate and you become like us, you will not actually succeed. And there were some Asian communities at the time who fought for that, who said, you know, we just need to work harder. We just need to like basically become them and work hard. But then there was an opposition of other Asian people who said, no, like that's not, like that's not what we want. Like we don't want to succeed because of our proximity to whiteness. It's this idea of meritocracy. It's the idea that, if you just work harder, if you do better, then you people won't be racist against you. But that's not true. And why is that even an, a concept in the first place? Why is it even fair that I have to work harder than the white man beside me to reach the same equal level as him? Yeah. I think, sorry, I just like I think it's it's harder to kind of recognize that because you're not questioning the system. You're questioning or like not challenging the system, but challenging the assumptions or the like the theory the theoretical frameworks on which the system is founded upon if that makes sense it's like a level even deeper than just the system itself mm. um so that's it's like it's like another level of kind of awareness and it's hard to um it's hard to gain that awareness when you're so entrenched in it like mm. a lot of people like we were saying don't really know that this is an issue because it's just the way it's been for generations and generations mm. and yeah it's it's kind of like now my, I'm wondering like how how does how does one become aware of that you know when it's it's just been your way of life and your your parents way of life and your parents parents way of ways of life and um yeah you know it's very interesting because we were talking about COVID before but one of the things about COVID how it, um, what COVID did is it highlighted the flaws of the current system right now. Um, and if specifically if we're talking about Asian discrimination, for, uh, there's a case like last May where uh, Filipino workers in Alberta were blamed for a COVID-19 outbreak in a factory, uh, in a plant, sorry, a plant. Um, however, these Filipinos, like they, they, they were hard workers, right? They um they want they the thing is it's like they 
have a strong work ethic and they were trying to like just work in general, but they don't have cars. They go, they go into public transit. Um, they're not really protected. They're not given PPE. They don't get paid benefits. So it's like, are you, so uh, you're getting, you're getting uh, these Asian workers, specifically Filipinos uh, in working in these places. Uh, they don't have really good conditions that protect them in the first place. And then you blame them for getting a virus when they're not protected. So it's kind of like, yeah, you, you want them to work harder, then you blame them. So uh, this is what COVID did in a way where it's, it, it created a lot of contradictions to, um, to a current system where it's like, yeah, you want a certain group to work harder for you, but you're not giving them the right amount of uh, protection and that and and uh, fair treatment that you would you would do your own citizens. It's and they're and they're producing for you. So um, this is what COVID did, and in this is like people. This is like racism in its own. It's like uh, is is discriminating uh, to people who produce for you. Yeah. Yeah. And on the same curtail, like that's not an isolated incident, like mm -hmm. continuously racialized communities have been blamed for the spread of COVID because it has disproportionately impact racialized communities, especially mm -hmm. the Filipinos of Canada. And the media is portraying it as if like, you know, we can't seem to stop having social gatherings. Like mm -hmm. we, you know, it's our own fault that we've spread it in our communities. Uh, the mayor of London, Ontario, actually did say that it was social, cultural gatherings that was the cause of the spread of COVID-19 in London. So, you know, that kind of rhetoric when really, why are racial communities specifically, and in this case, Filipinos, disproportionately affected? It's because when, when we come over here, we are, we are more likely to work in healthcare. Um, we're more likely to work in factories. We're more likely to work in food processing or service industries. Mm -hmm. And again, that that propensity for Filipinos to end up in these sectors isn't a coincidence either. Mm -hmm. And um, actually talking about the Philippines, um, there is a labor export policy. And where um, is it 10%? Or 11, more than 10%, I think it's 11% of the GOP, so the wealth of the Philippines is yeah. from overseas remittances. So rather than the Philippines providing for their people and um, building up their own economy so that everyone, every Filipino can succeed in their country, they, they have this rhetoric of like, no, there's no opportunities for you here. You need to go overseas and build a better life and, yeah. you know, and go overseas and make money that you can send back home. So that way you can contribute to our economy in that way. And in a way, the Philippines is exporting people. It's exporting mm -hmm. migrants. And, um, and that's like what's happening in Canada as well. Like in that Cargill uh, example that Al gave, they, were, they weren't being provided PPE. They don't have paid sick days. If they have uh, even, you know, maybe a cold, they, they can't afford to take a day off. And mm -hmm. so they're coming into work, but then there's no protections while they're at work. And then there's an outbreak surprise and then but then what happens after that how, how does the media portray that and the media portrayed it in a way that it was essentially the filipinos fault or the workers mm -hmm. fault they were predominantly filipino um and that 
they were the reason it was spreading. When, when we look at the actual root of the issue of why racialized people are disproportionately affected by COVID, it's, it, it goes a lot deeper than just, they like hanging out together. <laughs> and uh, it specifically just ties into like the class theory, like your working class and working class people, frontline yes. workers, they, they don't work from home. They don't have that safety. And uh, so what, going back to the, the labor export policy, it's kind of like the thing about Philippines is that like it's, it's a rich country on resources. Like you have you, you, it's a very, very rare um, combination that you have oil, you have wood, you have food and different kinds of variations of, uh, of these things. But like, why is it not going to the people right away? Uh, and that part you have to question. And, and, and the economic solution in the 70s at the time was to send Filipinos abroad. And I'm like, why are you exporting people <laughs> and it, instead of helping them? Um, and so you're, you're exporting people without get, and they're not ready. Uh, so you're, they're exported into like oil rich countries, then uh, countries that, that oppresses before like the States. Um, so yeah. Yeah. I think um, just to add on to that, and I think that's what fuels this notion of like, Asians being the model minorities, because even from the get-go, right, we're led to believe that life is better overseas, right? And it's uh, and the onus is on us to make that dream come true, mm-hmm. right? So we're more likely to take that discrimination and be like, you know what, it's fine. We'll take, we'll take the L just as long as my family succeeds, you know, because that's what we came here for. Yeah. But I think what we, what you guys said earlier, but fundamentally it's, it's a flawed notion of what success is because if you look at across most economic metrics, most social metrics, Asians have succeeded. We dominate academically, economically, that's not even a question. So ironically, in that sense, to a lot of other minorities, we're not disenfranchised. In fact, we're thriving. But at the end of the day, that, that doesn't really matter because at the end of the day, we're not white. <laughs> so. Where, where does that put us Asians? Well, we're not disenfranchised for our, for our issues to be taken seriously, mm. but we're not white for our, our issues to become relevant. So yeah, keep going, Mark. Um, please. No, so, I was just going to say, and, and when you talk about who thriving and succeeding, but who is thriving and succeeding, which Asian populations are thriving and succeeding. And it's almost like we can't, um, consider that statement without talking about class and class distinction, right? Because even within the Asian communities that are here or that have migrated outside of the Philippines or outside of Asia, um, there's still a lot of people who are not thriving and succeeding in, in that sense. And, and that's kind of where the class distinction comes in. And, mm-hmm. you know, like I was saying, like we can't separate um, race from class and, um, there's still that, right? Like, yes, some some Asian people were able to achieve whiteness, let's say, <laughs> or pseudo whiteness, or as close to it as they could. But that's not that's not feasible for everybody. And what are the systems at play here that keep other Asians from achieving that same level of success? And when you were saying how you know, like, we're like the idea that Asians are not disenfranchised. And that's, I think that's an intentional side effect of the model minority myth. So that way when, you know, when stuff does happen to our community or that's very blatant, like the shooting in Georgia, it's 
easy for other minorities or even other people who live here to discredit that, to say like, oh, it's an isolated incident. You don't, there's not actually a racial issue for their, that Asian space because look, look at all these other successful Asians, but it's like they almost use that rhetoric against us to say, to discredit the real, the very real discrimination that Asian people face. And tying to that, uh, so the Georgia shooting. So when we look at uh, the Georgia shooting, it's 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 paused, right? That uh, these women were killed and uh, other people were killed. But like we look, we we have to tie it back to the working class. So back then, in in Philippines, or or just even in Asian Asia countries, um, like these women didn't have couldn't provide, so what they would do, sell their bodies to, to, to foreigners, to uh, soldiers that they're just visiting. And then this becomes like almost an industrialized thing where it's like they, they use that as like a, they had to use that as an, to, as an opportunity to have, quote unquote, have a better life, but it's not usually the case. So they end up in, in places like Canada or America trying to make ends meet just doing the work when it, it, it's been like institutionalized for a long time that like, because of the, oh, those economic conditions, they're forced to do that work. Mm-hmm. And um, that Georgia shooting, is, and so in, in return, um, because they're forced to do that work, Asian women seen as docile. They're, they're sexualized, fetishized, all these things. Yellow fever. Yeah, and, and, <laughs> and it's because they had to do the work and they and it's like who's to blame here it's the it's not they can't be blamed for for these things it's it's the conditions that put them in the there in the first place right yeah and now then the Georgia shooting these are all a buildup of internal ideas that led to that like mm-hmm. I said how ideas are practiced earlier ideas mm-hmm. are practiced over and over and over and they've been t- they've been studied and taken up over and over and over and then you look then this thing is no no coincidence these are lead up lead up of events of of, journalistic sorry go ahead um on that note um i think it was really interesting you brought up for example yellow fever basically Mm -hmm. um it's because um prior to this episode i think marie sophia and i were talking about when everyone says asian american or asian canadian well do they actually mean all Asians, right? Because if you think about it, when they say, oh, Asian American, and you see the victims, for example, for a lot of the hate crimes that have been going on, well, they don't actually pertain to, for example, a majority of them don't pertain to, for example, Filipinos or Indians or people from Southeast Asia. They're actually a majority of them East Asian. So I guess we just wanted to ask to you, um, when people say anti-Asian prejudice, do you think this is actually inclusive to all Asian ethnicities? Or are we just looking at a very East Asian way of looking at things? Because whether we like it or not, like East Asians are just ironically the face of the Asian community. And that that's such a good point because that goes back to what we were talking about when I said that we got lumped into this Asian monolith. <laughs> What, what does it even mean to be Asian in the first place? And when people talk about Asian, Asian American, Asian Canadian, 
people are most often, you're right, Ian, referring to East Asians almost exclusively. And I think that also is an like an intentional side effect of the model minority myth is that it doesn't even apply to all a real Asian people, including uh, Filipinos, Indians, Indonesians. Um, and, you know, we're often excluded from that. And I think that that further um, is also intended to create more of a divide. Um, it's like they made this monolith so that they could discriminate wildly against Asians, but then they also didn't want us to band together. And so, right, like there's, there's so many of us, <laughs> like we, mm -hmm. they, they don't want us to unite. They don't want us to organize and come together because they, they know that there's power in numbers. And um, when we talk about uh, East Asians versus like the rest of um, the Asian community, I think that even this like stop Asian hate is still very specific to a certain group of Asian people. And the I've been having a hard time processing what the events that transpired this week, and not only because it was horrific and terrible, but the media outpouring that's come out with this blanket statement of like, stop Asian hate. And don't get me wrong, I'm all for stopping Asian hate, but it's it really ignores all the nuances that come with this identity of being quote unquote Asian, but it also doesn't take into account like what Al was talking about, which is the lack of protection for migrant workers, the lack of protection for poor people, the lack of protection for sex workers. And like that, why did they need to be, and when I say protection, I truly don't mean policing, just as a side note, <laughs> that's, that's not what I mean. I'm not advocating for more police presence in these communities. Just want to make that clear, uh, but yeah. It, but the, how do we treat our most vulnerable populations, regardless of race, uh, the, our poor, our, our, our vulnerable, our indigenous peoples? Like, how do we treat them? And what, what is the rhetoric that spreads across the whole country of their value to our society? And like, in order for somebody to, you know, conduct this kind of heinous crime, they have some kind of they didn't just decide one day that I'm gonna go and kill a bunch of Asian women because I want them and I can't have them. Um, why did they even want them in the first place? And when we're talking about kind of like yellow fever and this image of Asian women being docile and um, needing of protection and needing or wanting to be saved by a white man or you know all of these really terrible stereotypes about Asian women, that all, comes back to that the the same idea that of like yellow fever and like we're not protecting or not it's not protecting is not the right word because that really makes me think of policing <laughs> we're not, we're not valuing we don't there's a there's a devaluation of the of asian women specifically yeah. this and asian and poor asian women even more so yeah. and um uh, and and adding to that like like, um, but historically, there has been a lot of badass Asian women that that fought for a lot of rights, uh, uh, especially like in the colonial times, like uh, uh, Gabrielle. Gabriela Silang. Oh yeah, oh my, she's she's like the Joan of Arc of the of the Philippines. Um, so adding to that, so going to the model minority myth and the proximity to whiteness. Uh, you, you guys live in Canada, right? Or you guys like, yeah. So you ever heard the term FOB? 
Yeah. Yep. <laughs> okay, now, now, we're Asians, but why do we call other Filipinos fob? Mm. We kind of touched upon this in our first episode, actually. It's like we almost want to dissociate from the quote-unquote fobs because we have to be Canadian. And by doing that, we're basically rejecting our culture or rejecting a type of, like, we're, we're creating stereotypes within our own community. Yeah, so proximity to whiteness, right? Yeah. Yeah, so that, that's, that's, what, that's what it is. And that is, like, that's what uh, the model minority myth uh, ties into. It's, like, how close to white you are. And I'm, like, shouldn't we not consider them fobs, but still just consider them, like, Filipino people, Vietnamese yeah. people, Indian people? And, in, and back and, to Ian's point. Oh, sorry. Oh. No, no, go on, go on. Back to Ian's point is that we, we aren't white. And we will never be white, no matter how many, you know, titles we get, no matter how much money we make, we will still never be white. And um, how can we aspire for this level of success that is completely unattainable? Yeah. And I think what's scary with that is that it's almost like, why, why can't I, why can't I achieve that level? Like, what is wrong with me? Like, we don't, well, maybe I can't generalize that, but a lot of people don't see it as a systematic or racial problem it's it's a personal one it's like you almost tell yourself it's okay to be racist but without realizing you're actually saying those words to yourself and not only that it's like yeah it's i i, I agree with that and tying into actually not i'm actually tying to what you're saying um and even for example like um the idea of success you earn a lot of uh you earn a lot of economic status you 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 go up the pay scale um that still goes into like the colonizer's idea of success. Yeah. Power over someone, power mm-hmm. over this. Mm-hmm. And it's like, what is the true definition of success, really? Yeah. And it's defined one way for the longest time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess one thing I've been thinking about throughout this whole thing is you guys were mentioning um, these issues disproportionately affect um, like the poor, the working mm. class. And these people like, like how, how, how do you go about kind of like, like, you know, if you're, you're, if you're, if your problem is, okay, I need to make money for my family. I need to send money back home. Where's the time or where's the, the mental energy? Where can you get like, I'd imagine you don't have the mental energy or the time to like challenge these things, you know? Like, it's like, I'm just like speaking like in the Philippines, for example, most people are just like, I just need to make enough money to survive the month, survive the week. So Mm -hmm. I can't even begin to challenge with, you know, the government, you know, I just have to go with the system because otherwise I can't feed my family. So it's the same kind of thing. Like how, how, how does, like, I'm just trying to understand, like, how, how do we kind of progress while like while having the pressure of like having to provide or having to focus on education or all these things um does that make sense it does make sense totally yeah yeah and i think that that that's like a a huge challenge in general right like how yes i know the system is rotten i know it's not good but what can i do what i'm just but one person and i'm one person that is subject to the rules of this society. I'm a one person that's subject to this, the rules of the system. I'm not, 
I'm not free from capitalism, right? Like we all live in Canada. We, we participate in a capitalist society and that's, that's just the reality that of the life that we are living. But um, a big thing to remember is that when we're talking about organizing and we're talking about coming together, it's that coming together and it's the idea of working as a collective. And when the collective succeeds, we all succeed. And that the burden isn't on you as an individual. And that was something that was almost difficult for me, even when I started with Anna Klein, is that, you know, I felt this like almost pressure, this pressure to be a good activist, this pressure to be useful to the organization when at the end of the day, those ideas of individualism um, don't really have place in the movement because we're, we work together, we're a collective. There's good enough for whom, right? Good enough for whom. And especially so when we think about that, like it's, it gets really heavy and you get this like existential crisis of like, I, I wanna help the system, but I don't have time. I need to focus, I have, my focus is so much elsewhere. But I, But when you become part of an organization, those things, um, it's almost like you, those individual feelings dissipate a bit because you work together and you know that you can lean on each other and that you're mm -hmm. fighting for something way bigger than who you are and what your, your issues are. And I think that that's really important to think about, like to think about how we can come together as a collective. And, um, and again, I mean, I keep saying the same thing. <laughs> it's intentional that we're, mm -hmm. we feel these burdens, right? These burdens are also placed on us to feel that it's a you problem. It's something I have to sort out. It's something mm -hmm. I need to make enough money to provide for my family because they don't want us to think, oh, what if we relied on each other? Indeed. What if we came together instead? And because they, they see the danger in that. They see the threat in people mm -hmm. banding together. They see the threat in organized um, activism. And so they... They don't want that for us. And so those ideas of like that pressure, that societal pressure, the, um, those are intentionally placed upon us to and feel that we can't and shouldn't contribute to um, working towards something better. And, uh, and the, the other thing, adding to what Mark said, like, um, so it's a colonizer's mentality to divide and conquer, right? Yeah. Um, and that kind of attributes to that that kind of mentality attributes to a lot of individualism, selfishness. It's thinking about you over someone else. And uh, when you come back to like uh, to what you uh, said about like um, like for some for someone who's trying to meet meet ends meet, like people who are organizing, uh, uh, who are activists, they still have to work. They still have to do day jobs. But the thing too is like it's it's daunting to just do it alone. Uh, you're you're also when you organize, you're put with people in similar situations together, um, in the same boat, and and it's like um, you're all when you organize, you or you work collectively to uh, to one goal. Uh, when you when you you come when you're here in Canada, you have unions. It protects people. Uh, well, the aim is to to protect the workers and. To have a transparency. This is what we need. This is what the uh, these are the the basic necessities that, that the workers need and and whatnot. So this is the importance of organizing um, because it takes away the dauntingness of of trying to 
you know, the pressure of a system going at you. You have uh, people collectively fighting and efforts is not going to be a one person thing. It's a whole team, whole team thing. Easier said than done, but that's, that's what happens when the rhetoric of divide and conquer comes through. It's just like they want you to, to divide, but they, but the thing is, it's like a lot of, and this goes back to the concept of power where people have a lot more power than they think. Concept of power is not always uh, you oppressing someone or you dominating someone. Some, and power could also mean, um, it also means like uh, working together or being the same level as someone else. That kind of individual individuality thinking also goes, ties into like the idea of sexism. It's like men over women. It's like that, where did that come from? A colonial structure, a patriarchal structure. And um, Philippines was never like that before pre-colonial times. And I think too, like to talk about like, um, when you're saying, you know, it's hard, like how can you find the time or the energy? Part of that too is not seeing activist work as separate from the rest of your life. It's not like an extracurricular really. Um, in the sense that, you know, like I'm gonna learn to play tennis or like I'm gonna join a, a sports club. The commitment to it is more of an, an ideological basis. It's unlearning and remolding yourself as a person and your values to, mm -hmm. to really think about things from a, a different perspective, from this national democratic perspective. And so rather than seeing as it as it like, oh, it's just another time commitment or it's something that I need to give I need to like carve out time for. And of course you do, you, this stuff takes time, but the idea isn't to see it as like a task or as a, a thing to do. The idea is to see it as like a long-term growth and process that is truly never ending. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, maybe one day, but <laughs> like it, it is a process and it's continual. Like I'm forever growing, forever remolding. And part of that is that, is that, net almost of being part of the collective and organizing and challenging these systems because um, one of the key things about organizations and being belonging to an organization is talking about things from a systematic level rather than being reactionary and you know something bad happens and we we have a protest or something um, a law gets passed and there was a rally and of course these things are important and they're part of organizing but the root of organizing is getting to the the systems like dismantling these these rotten systems and these oppressive systems to build something new to start from the ground up and um part of that is is like i said is ongoing so rather than seeing this work and this remolding as like a paper or a midterm like it's it's something that that's internal and then the things that you learn and you start to to face, you start to bring them into other facets of your life as well. Like when, you know, for example, you're a worker, you work at a factory, you need to make money, you need to make ends meet. But if you start becoming organized also, you start realizing, oh, what are what are the systematic things at play here that have put me in this situation that I'm basically forced to toil these terrible hours under terrible conditions. And then you start to realize like that starts to bleed into your work too. And then you think, what if I could raise the collective consciousness of the people around me? Could we band together? Could we unionize? And we've seen other places do this, right? Google recently just had um, their first employee union and that's 
that's part of it too, right? Like the things that you take from organizing and activist work is that it also, it's not mutually exclusive from the rest of your life. And it's not, um, it's not separate. And you start to kind of um, look into these. And when you say like, how do we start dismantling this idea of the model minority myth? How do we start dismantling our own individual pressures of feeling like, oh, it's okay. I'll just take like Ian said, I'll just take the loss. <laughs> I'll just take it and mm. I'll move past. I'll, I'll break through the barriers of racism. And it's like, mm. but when you start active, when you start organizing and you start thinking about these from a systemic point of view, you start to see your own successes and your own work from a different lens also. And when you, when you look at things in a systemic point of view, um, let's put this more on a, let's put this on a day-to-day level. Um, you work in a part-time job. You work at Timmy's, right? There's different Timmy's locations, but some Timmy's locations are great to work at because the people are great. We have to keep in mind the people make the, the work environment, not the, not the bosses, not the, not the management. And that's the, that's the thing, because it's like the, the number of people make what, what that, work, that uh, work environment is like. Now to put it in a, in a bigger scale, um, it's like we hear the term, whenever we, we hear the term talking about politics, why does it scare people? Um, because politics is not supposed to be polarizing, but whenever, you, but whenever you live your life, it's always political. You come from a certain background, you come from a certain class, you come from a certain uh, kind of upbringing, and these play into uh, the idea of politics. And so when, you, when we talk about raising consciousness, it's like raising political consciousness, it's, like, it's to help each other understand where you're from, where you're at, and uh, collectivizing into uh, an into a unity, like a, a unified actions that that lead to something that um, that releases us from these current systems or these these certain policies that that uh, keep us a certain way in place. So those things don't have things don't change when. Uh, you stay silent. Uh, things change when, when people who are tired of being silent come together. One thing that's been mentioned, I think, continuously is that a lot of racism is intentionally perpetuated, right? And mm-hmm. it's historical. But be- and I think adding to that, that also means that although we want change, there are other people who don't. Like, mm-hmm. how do we, like, it's, 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 a part of it is our job to want to grow, to want to change, to want to move forward. But how do we get other people outside of our community to also want that for the rest of the world? Like, you kind of get that mm. question. Yeah. So are you referring to like something like the idea of like white privilege or something like that? Or Well, just like if, if the problem is, if one of the roots of the problem is systematic, but other people don't see a need for change yet mm-hmm. we do, how do we help them come to that realization? Because mm-hmm. by basically by bringing, by bringing equality, the people who benefit from the, the, like, who benefit from our disadvantages, basically quote unquote, lose some of their privileges, like you're saying. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. And I think a very important thing is to, is, and when we talk about how we study and we, we learn together, 
a big part of that too is learning the masses, learning the people that you're serving. So outside of even just the Filipino community, but the general population at large, what are their beliefs? Where, where are they coming from? What are their struggles? What do they care about? Because if you think about it, there's actually a lot more people who face these same struggles, especially when we talk about class discrimination. Like there's a lot of, and not just Filipinos or even racialized people, like white people can be poor too. Are, yeah. and, and they don't even realize that the same systems that are oppressing us are also oppressing Depressing. them. So yeah. there's like a point of like meeting people where they are and, um, you know, understanding what are their what are their issues what do they care about and bringing those things and what you what you're fighting for and trying to find like some kind of common ground and it can be very difficult and sometimes it might feel like there's not and maybe there isn't but there are enough people in this world that are oppressed by the systems that exist and they just don't realize it like mm. who does capitalism really serve at the end of the day like this system this system that we live in who is it for it's for a very small very Percent. small population and you think like okay to throw it out they always say the one percent or whatever so 99 percent of people are oppressed by capitalism so if we can find that common commonality between the 99 percent of the people that's an uprising like we're ready for like revolution pretty much right like it, and there's power in numbers and uh when when it comes to like especially the topic of white people like um like white like yeah they're they're like poor white people tend to be racist because they they get fed the, the narrative that uh immigrants people of color to blame and it's like but they're also being oppressed unknowingly. They they also get policed. That doesn't get talked about, and yeah. it's it's a hard conversation to have. Uh, and when it, when it comes to, yeah, sorry, I I um, kind of lost my train of thought. No, it's okay. Yeah, no, because like I, I was leading to something. Um, okay, sorry guys, this is a candid part. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess for me on a personal level, why I bring this up is because a lot of my friends in high school were white, mm. like, like they were my crowd. But like the moment you start bringing in white privilege, the moment you start talking about discrimination, it's like they don't want to have that conversation. And it's like, are, are, you, are you denying it? Like, do you mm. not care? Like how, like, how do you go about bringing that into a conversation? So... Uh, when it comes to that, that's a very difficult thing to talk about. But you, but first, start with the basis of unity. What do you want for everyone else? Um, because it's like, because when you when you're benefiting from a certain thing, it's hard to see see it. So you, instead of trying to raise their consciousness like politically, um, try to raise the fact that they're not, they don't know much yet, and that's where you start because it's like, yeah. It's, it's true that white people will benefit from it, but they can also be our allies to help change the system. And yeah. in order to do that, we have to um, heighten the contradiction of what they know versus what we know. Because it's like what we know is a whole different scale because it's our experience. But the thing is, it's, it's not their fault that they, know, that they don't know. It's, it's the narrative, it's, it's systems of, like I said, the idea that's been practiced so long and that's placed mm -hmm. into them. And we also have to look at, are these people willing to change? Because people are either racist for either two reasons. They chose to be, or they 
out of ignorance and they know and they know the other side or upbringing and they just don't know any better and um and this is the the tough the tough conversations that we should be all we should try to challenge ourselves to to have is because uh without having these tough conversations we won't have basis of unity we have to start with the, the human first it's like what do they care about what do you believe in and it ties into what mark said it's like what where do people uh you have to meet up where people are at uh before we 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 go to the terminology because people have values at the end of the day and but how do we organize those values into um those uh those uh terminology that we we want to move forward with we need to unite by by seeing what people are at yeah i think and, yeah uh, like we've all talked here today about the importance of how deeply rooted these ideas are and how it's it's institutional. And I think a lot of, especially white people, are their immediate def- reaction is to feel defensive, right? Mm-hmm. When you say things like white privilege, um, white fragility is a real thing. Um, like you know, they get defensive. And I think, for me at least, what's helped is talking about it at almost like a high level, like removing their their wrongdoings from it almost, like almost like saying like, yeah, well, it's not really your fault. And that's kind of where it starts. Like that's why when we, people really like unconscious bias training, I found this up in my workplace is that like unconscious bias training, people like it because it almost a, in a weird way kind of makes the person feel like, oh, well, it's not my fault, it's unconscious. But then you have to go deeper than that too, though. Like, that's a great starting point, I think, like saying like, you know, there are unconscious biases, there are systematic ideologies that bleed into our our everyday that we don't even realize. And so, you know, we're, we're benefiting from the system in ways that we don't even know. But then once you kind of get to that common ground, then you want to kind of push it further. And it's like, okay, so yeah, it is unconscious, however... Yeah. Now that it's conscious in your mind, what can you do to, to be better? How can you be a better ally? Um, mm. But I, I think like a good starting point, like part of meeting somebody where they're at is most people are not at the point where they're willing to confront their own personal contradictions. Like most mm. people are not quite there yet. So how can you get them to the point where they're ready to turn that lens inward? And um, like, unfortunately, the recent world that we're living in I think makes it a bit easier to talk about that like nobody should be murdered based on their race like that is an objective fact like that's not an opinion right like I you shouldn't be killed because you look one way than another right and so it's almost easier at this when things like that happen to come to a basis of unity right from the get-go but then you want to kind of challenge that further and it, it is difficult it's hard and, and I yeah. personally am not good at it. <laughs> Very and, conflict adverse. <laughs> so, it, so it's hard. It's hard. And uh, same as you, Marie, like most of my friends are also predominantly white. And, you know, I'm, I ask myself this thing too, like how can I raise their consciousness in a way that makes them not feel like I'm attacking them? And uh, I think to that, like how do you raise the consciousness? One, uh, without attacking, is also like using the shame method as a very counterproductive way when it comes to learning. So, for example, let's, let's remove this whole topic. You made a mistake in, uh, for example, you and your friends are trying to make a bonfire and you made a mistake of not buying wood. 
right? Okay, like you're not buying one, right? But, and you're like, shoot, I forgot I bought gum instead. What if your friend <laughs> says, yeah, yeah, so, okay, I'm going to make this like a very lighthearted like, um, uh, comparison, but like, but what, how would you feel if your friends be like, man, I'm not going to trust you buying wood again? You're so dumb. <laughs> yeah, you're so dumb. It's like, how do you feel? You wouldn't want to, uh, you won't, you won't want to associate like getting wood for a bonfire anymore. I know this is so dumb, but like, that's, uh, but that's shame methodology. And it's, and when we were talking about like people, I, I'm going to go very, uh, on a personal level here, but like when you have relatives that have very backwards ideas, um, yeah. but you, and you're like, but why do you think this way? It's because of their experiences and the, the narrative being placed through them that like, when you follow this, uh, this, this kind of life path that, you know, oh yeah. Um, it, your life will be better. Um, that, that's what happens. And then they start to devalue things like, uh, or like lose track of, of things that like, how do you value a human being in the first place? Without like, like and, and that's the thing. So shame, shaming someone for not knowing is a very counterproductive thing. Uh, and it's a very difficult thing, especially when someone has opposite opinions from you and at the end of the day we're not trying to be activists so we could shame people we're trying to be activists so we can unite people and like mark said go high level blame the system not the people uh uh critique the system critique what's because the thing is issues happen all the time systems are always in place but system uh issues happen because current systems are in place not the other way around well, I guess adding on to that note, um, on, the, on the notions of what it takes to be a good activist and to fight the system instead of individual, um, I think it would be remiss if we didn't bring up Asians being discriminatory, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. so I guess, because I know definitely for a fact that like Asians can be very, very racist. Yeah. Um, I think the most explicit one probably, I guess in most of our families is we can't take someone who's a specific shade of darkness, specifically if they're black, right? Mm -hmm. So I guess I would like to table this, the discussion or how, like I'd like to ask, how can we, I guess, as people, because ultimately if, if we're fighting for equality, we better fight for everyone. We're not just fighting it for just for Filipinos or just for no, East Asians, definitely. right? Because if we're doing that, we're only fighting for preferential treatment. We're not for equality, exactly. right? So I guess how can we, I guess, as stated earlier, flip the lens towards an inward sense of reflection and I guess reconcile the fact that maybe we are racist, especially as Asians. And just because we are minorities, it doesn't, let us off the hook of us being, for lack of a better term, racist yeah. assholes. <laughs> so Yeah, no, definitely. I think we have to be hold ourselves accountable too, as much as we're holding white people and other people accountable to their racist ideologies. Um, and I know I sound, I've been saying the same thing over and over again, but uh, that like when, when we talk about turning the lens inwards, where do ideas come from? Where do these ideas that we have about other races or our parents might have about other races come from? Like, how did they 
where did they form these notions that, you know, dark skin is bad? Like, where did that all come from? And um, kind of bearing that in mind that there, there is a larger thing at play here. Filipinos didn't just wake up one day and decide that they hated black people. Like yeah. there's, that's a rhetoric that's pushed even within the Filipino community. Like my mom used to buy me papaya soap to make my skin lighter. Like- We're closer to black um, people than <laughs> No, no, for real. Like, like the, 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 the original Filipinos, like if you look, if you look back in history, but go on. Yeah, so it's just like the idea that like these, the notion that we, we be we are we have these interrace problems. They're perpetuated by somebody else, or not mm -hmm. somebody, something bigger than just just us and just our than bigger than just our parents and our grandparents' ideas. Um, for example, there's been a lot of um, people in the media right now saying like, okay, so we're talking about anti-Asian hate. Why don't we talk about like all of like the black on Asian violence and um, let's talk about that. And it's like, well there's this perpetuation that foreigners are bad. Foreigners of all kinds are bad. And like they've they've pushed this rhetoric that it doesn't matter. And because most of the black population, especially in the US didn't immigrate there by choice, right? They were brought there. And so to them, other immigrants are foreigners. And that, that rhetoric is still pushed that they're, that we're, um, we're here to take their jobs, we're here to take their money. Um, and then also within our own communities, like we do have this anti-blackness within us and this colorism that mm -hmm. is pervasive even just within our own community where, you know, dark skin is bad. And it's important to challenge these ideas. And, you know, like for me, when my mom or dad says something about like how dark I am, I'm like, why is that a problem? Mm -hmm. why, why is it, what's wrong with that? Like, why do you, why do you think it's bad to be dark? And then it's, makes them think like, well, why is it bad to be dark? Why, yeah. why have we thought that? And those same stereotypes that, um, that originated here, like, you know, that black people are gangsters or whatever, like those mm -hmm. things, like they, those things are spread throughout other racialized communities, again, to further that divide and mm -hmm. um, like further that divide. And if we think historically about like, the Black Panther movement, like there were Asian groups that stood with that yellow peril for Black Panther. Um, and even like Al said, like we still continue to fight for solidarity in that sense. And I think mm -hmm. it's really important that when our families and when other Filipinos say racist things about other races, that we ask them like, why? What, <laughs> why, why do you think that? Where did these ideas come from? Do you why why and, yeah and and <laughs> you you start to and uh like to your question ian it's it's also like really good that we focus on certain systems in place for example when we talk about black people why is there a high gang activity it's because they're it's because they're put in certain conditions after uh slave abolishment what was next the prison system and then uh black people weren't given the right reparations to to live life uh, uh, correctly and uh, live life like sorry not in a supported way not correctly so supported way um, uh, th that's what I meant like they're not they're not supported and you also have to account for like trauma that happened too it's like that's also uh, debilitating it's like it's like you don't move forward right away 
it, 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 it goes on to generation to generation to generation. So when you talk about certain systems in place, these, these affect like the narrative uh, because like, yeah, they're, they're gonna, like, there's gonna be a, a, um, a narrative that they're gonna bring, oh yeah, black bar thugs, drug dealers and all that stuff. But why? It's because of these current systems. Then they, they bring that to other racialized uh, communities. Then it, it creates a divide. And, and further division, 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 division. And uh, they make us try to play our, 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 a stereotype that's placed upon us. So it's really important that we, we know, we, we get conscious about current systems and, and uh, we keep talking about systems, systems and systems, like they're, they're important. And to some people it's very impossible to dismantle, but like, this is what's the importance of unity. We make up more, we make up, a lot of the population uh, where we could actually change something. And we have to believe that we have power in ourselves because the power dynamic, again, is a, the, the way we understand power is a colonized thing. It's not supposed to be about dominating. It, there's different ways of having power. <laughs> and I think, Ian, too, it's important to remember that it, remolding and unlearning is a continuous process mm -hmm. and I know like for myself personally and I've heard this saying before where it's like the the immediate thing you think is a product of your your society and the like your implicit thoughts but then when you the second thing you think is is like what your actual thoughts are so like you know if you see a dark skinned person and you decide to cross the street, like immediately you had this like bias that kicked in and, but then, but then question that, question yourself, where, why did I think that? So like, you know, I see something and I, I immediately feel one way about it, but then I think like, well, no, that's wrong. I don't actually know anything about that person. And, um, and I think that that implicit, that first instinct that we know is wrong and racist in ourselves, isn't gonna go away overnight. It's just because we're we're starting to talk about it, like even, um, or even reading about it or learning about it. It it's very deeply rooted in all of us. And 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 as racialized people, we also internalize the racism we receive, right? Like, just how we were saying, like you know, it's fine. <laughs> it's fine that we experience discrimination and racism. We'll just work harder and rise above it. Like that. That too is like are like almost like internalized racism. And so we also mm -hmm. have to fight those notions um, in ourselves. So when I was saying like, you know, question your family and question them, but also question yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think um, like listening to all that, it made me realize that it is, it is a process. And because it's a process, we make mistakes. And a lot of times, you know, on social media, Cancel culture is a big thing. And I think what needs to be promoted more is like patience and and kind of like acceptance that we're, we're human beings. Like, you know, there's, there's an extent to which some things are intolerated, yes, but then we're all learning, you know? And I feel like mm. there needs to be more of an emphasis on empathy and and kind of just like acceptance that we all make mistakes. And instead of sort of, okay, you're wrong, you know? Yeah. You can say, you can say okay, like try to understand first where they're coming from. Like mm. when I see stuff on social media, you know, it's so easy to be like, what is this person saying? But <laughs> I think 
there, like I think like talking about it now it's there's a lot in order to sort of incorporate like activism into your own life and to question these things within your family within yourself there needs to be a sense of like okay I'm gonna make mistakes and it's okay but like two steps forward one step back and but we're still moving forward kind of thing it's like exactly not gonna change overnight I think you guys have mentioned this and yeah and cancel culture kind of expects that it will or like you have to get it right all the time and I think Mm -hmm. that needs to sort of change like it it can't be that way we have to be more accepting of Mm -hmm. you know we're all learning and yeah, it's just so yeah. toxic sometimes, you know? I, I completely agree. I agree and, like, cancel culture is very toxic. And the idea isn't that we give them a free pass, right? Like, the idea isn't that we don't call out mistakes. The idea is that we hold them accountable in a way that they can Animal. grow and learn, right? Like, accountability over being canceled. Yeah. And um, even within our own org, like, we all make mistakes. Like, yeah. Say, like, yeah, I call that each like, time. You know, so, <laughs> <laughs> no, I love time, calling Alquin like, out. Just kidding. Yeah, no, <laughs> just, just like, like, I, like we call each other out. And yeah. part, of, part of growing and part of remolding is being able to criticize others and also criticize yourself and mm. viewing criticism not as a negative like cancel culture kind of thing like mm. oh well you did this wrong you're you're kicked out of Anakbayan like the, yeah. it's definitely not like that right like if something if somebody says something that's wrong or incorrect or has wrong views then we talk about it and we also talk about where those person's ideas came from in the first place and we start mm. and that's like where that process of unlearning really starts sorry I almost fell um that's where that process of unlearning and remolding really comes through and the idea mm. that it it is an ongoing never-ending process and that's okay and it's okay if we're not ready and ready for whom again like what does what does that even mean like um you know like we're all we're all moving forward and it's important that we hold space for other people who to make mistakes as well and uh when when we when we talk about cancel culture it just focuses the the one of the toxic things about cancel culture it focuses on the individual and when you use a shame tactic it focuses on individual growth than a collective growth so mm-hmm. th- that's why it's really important um accountability and criticism are are the, are the two most important things because taking accountability means like you're you're pledging yourself to do better not for yourself but for the be- but also as a collective but when you, when um, but when you focus on like shame, especially when we're talking to like, let's say let's say our uh, our white friends, uh, putting shame on them just will only focus on their uh, their individual growth as like what they don't know. But mm-hmm. it, in in fact, this is not what we're trying to ask. We're trying to ask unite with us, fight to do this together, and um, and accountability not only goes to them, it goes to us too, because Filipinos have toxic tendencies. We need to, um, we need to break that. Other Asians have toxic tendencies. They, their community could say the same thing. And yeah. we have to break that collectively and see a better future for everybody. So, um, I guess to close, and I guess this is, I really love this quote. It was said by Ingram Kennedy. It was like, and it kind of summarizes a bit of what we were talking about. He said in a podcast, like, we live in a world where, like, racism is raining down on us, but we don't even realize that we're wet. So 
with what you just said about being accountable, holding other people's account, holding other people accountable and holding ourselves accountable. How do you think we can become more aware of the historical and systematic basis that racism lies upon? And how do we, where should we go or how do we go about educating ourselves to really understand how the prejudice attitudes that we form or that society has ingrained in us come from? Join an org. Join an org. <laughs> yeah, okay, here, here's, 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 here's why. When you try to learn things yourself, uh, when you try to learn, so the thing is, the, the term org, thing, you think about a company. You think about a way you have to make money, you have to contribute a certain way. An org, by definition, just means a collection of people, really. You're just having uh, people organized to a certain goal. That's it. But what's different? It's different from the, nar- the narrative of you going to work. <laughs> but joining, joining an org, you not only... Because learning these things alone, you will learn... You, like, who's... When you make mistakes and learning something or picking up on certain information, who's there to correct you? And, and who's there, who are you going to practice these ideas with? So you need people to, to, to be with. And learning and re- unmolding or remolding and unlearning is hard. But when you have other people to do it with, it, it's, um, it's different. It's mm. like, you know, like I have had so many things that I've wanted to challenge, but it's difficult to just challenge them alone. But when you can challenge them together, it, it's different. Mm. And also personally, if I read a book and there are pieces in it that either I don't agree with or I don't understand or I don't agree with because I don't understand them, I'm just going to skim it like or I'm going to forget it. Mm. Like, right. But when we read and we learn together, then there's there's no opportunity for that. <laughs> there's no, yeah. like if, if there's something like if we're, we're reading a passage and there's something in it that makes me feel certain, some kind of ways, I'm going to say that. And then we can challenge those notions together. But also mm. um, when you're organized, like I said before, your focus is not just about issue based. It's about the systems and mm. our focus isn't short term. Like we have long term <coughs> ideas and goals that we were fighting for and um, being part of an org can kind of help you realize that mm-hmm. and it can also help you through those um, like kind of existential crises that you have about like who am I what is my purpose here and I found that um, being part of a collective and sharing those things with other people and learning together is really powerful and um, at the end of the day like I can't str- like I can't stress enough how important like unity and unity and organization is um whether that's within your own org or you know orgs coming together like um in an alliance and solidarity um like to overthrow these systems like that's going to come from us banding together so and systems inside of us too because when you join an org um so you know when you, we keep talking about education and learning uh we will the first thing that we think of is teacher student teacher student but that's not the case because like sometimes um, it, I, I got it dismantled because it's like, for example, I, I'm a firm believer personally that you can learn from younger people, older people everywhere because I, some of the, the best things I've learned are for people younger than me. And we have to, that's the importance of empowering youth. So when you, when you think about learning, everyone learns differently. Uh, personally, I can't process big words. So I need to ask, um, hey, what does this word mean? I, um, I like... I know it sounds dumb, but like, I, I don't care. I'm learning, right? You're learning together. There's no shame in not knowing. So when you create that environment of not knowing and 
people could collectively learn. I, like, I'm not the most academic, but I think I'm very, uh, I'm more on the practical side. Um, and, and, and the thing too is like you cater to different learning styles when you, when you join like an org uh, together and different orgs do different things. And uh, as long as it's inclusive to everybody, you know, uh, to, in, in different backgrounds, you learn, you learn. And learning is continuous. Yeah. Um, well, I think this is like a nice place to end it. Um, you know, hopefully people who are listening to this, what, what I've taken from it is like the, the word that's coming in my mind now is humility. Um, you know, there's a sense that we don't know everything and, you know, talking and listening are equally important in, in kind of building this activism and this um, awareness within us and spreading that to others. And, and again, like you guys said, um, joining an org. And I think hopefully for those people who are listening, well, for me, because I'm honestly like joining an org is a scary thing because I have the feeling of like, oh, I don't know enough. So maybe. No, I don't know. I enough. knew nothing. nothing. No, I. I <laughs> and I, I uh... still know nothing. So, yeah, that's there's never enough. Like there's enough for who? Again, I asked you. Actually, Sophia, you actually quite know quite a bit. To be honest, we all you. know, uh, dude. Yeah, yeah. Like, like when, when, when you lived, lived Filipino. Yeah, you actually, know, when you explain so much, when you were talking to us, you actually know quite more than uh, quite these things. But the thing about org, it means organizing those ideas, really, because it's like um, that's what, it, like I said, dismantling the idea that an org means like work or volunteer. It, it actually yeah. just means like organizing your ideas in one place. And the thing is, you already know. Uh, you, you brought up that question to me, uh, to us about the, uh, how do people like have the time when you're, when they're trying to meet the ends meet, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah. Same thing with Ian, you, you, you brought up really good points like what, uh, on certain terminology and definitions and same thing with you, Marie. So it's like, you guys know more and it's like, uh, that's the importance of empowering. It's like, you don't have to know everything. Right. <laughs> no, yeah. exactly. And when we, when we accept that we don't know everything, like um, that's where we, we learn. Ex- that's when we learn. We start to accept criticism. That's when we accept accountability. Yes. Um, I know. Okay. Uh, when when people when we fight for certain things, it's not because we're not scared. It's because we're scared. But it's, it's it's scarier to let these things happen in front of our eyes. We're it's okay to be scared. <laughs> so. It's true. You also join us, though, by the way, but, like, you know. <laughs> but, um, thank you so much, Marg and Al. Um, we really, really appreciate this um, for our listeners. Um, please stay tuned to what Anna Bayan has, too. So, whenever we end, like, anything, a discussion, there's this thing called Islam okay. Bookstack. It means, like, one one thing down. So, I kind of want you guys to join in. Okay. Okay. So, have, have your hands up, like this. So, we can say Islam Bagsak. And then, yeah, we finish it. So it's kind of like uh, one thing down, one thing down. That's what it means. So it's like a collective thing. So let's try again. Isa. Uh, so to a to a great discussion. Let's speak. This is a group podcast for a bit. A great discussion. Isang bagsa. There you go. <laughs> I love that.